the, um, the purpose of this Christmas series that we've been uh, working our way through was to expose us as a church to, to this, this small handful of people who received Christ in faith with little more to go on than God's promises. And our, our primary focus has been on what they believed. We started at the beginning, at the beginning of December, with, with, with two women, Elizabeth and Mary. And we saw that they believed not only that God would one day send a Messiah. They were Jews, after all. They were anticipating the coming Messiah. They believed he was coming, but they also believed he was coming through the Virgin Mary. And in Mary's womb were all of the promises of God from Genesis onward. And then we saw Zechariah's faith in Christ as well. Pastor Saunders showed us in chapter, was it chapter 2? Yeah, chapter, chapter 1, chapter 1, that Zechariah, he needed a little bit more time than Mary and Elizabeth did. But, but once the forerunner arrived, once John the Baptist arrived, the one who was sent to prepare the hearts of Israel for the Messiah, well, that's when Zechariah received Christ in faith. And then last week, Josh introduced us to Simeon who's a man who has been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah for who knows how long. And all he has to do is see the baby. All he has to do is see the little baby and hold him, and he believes. And in each of these individuals, you you probably notice this, it is the Holy Spirit who is testifying to Christ. Did you see that as we were working our way through Luke? or at least the first couple chapters of Luke. Elizabeth, at the very beginning, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry this blessing over Mary, which was also a prophetic song of God's faithfulness. And then Mary, who has also received the Holy Spirit, sings her prophetic song, magnifying God and exalting Christ. And then comes Zechariah, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he sings all of what Jesus has fulfilled. And then before Simeon does anything, Luke says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And then we get the blessing of God that, that Josh walked us through last week. And what Luke the gospel writer, is clearly showing us is that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all sorts of people. And it all surrounds the arrival of Jesus. An old priestly man has a vision. A poor teenager is visited by an angel and conceives the Messiah by the Holy Spirit and then sings a prophecy by the the Spirit. A, A barren woman receives the Holy Spirit along with a baby. And another previously unknown man receives the Spirit. And then we won't have time to get to Anna, but there's this prophetess, Anna, and she prays and she worships in the Spirit. What Luke is doing for us, he's, he's painting with very bright colors and showing us that the Holy Spirit is visiting God's people, Israel, and it all aligns with the arrival of Jesus, which in itself is a fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah, isn't it? Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And that's what we've been seeing. Your old men shall dream dreams. That's literally what happened to Zechariah. Your young men shall see visions. That's what happens to Joseph in Matthew's gospel. And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. 
Now, even though all of that more fully comes to pass at Pentecost in the book of Acts, it's beginning to happen even now. The first drops of rain are are cooling the desert, and it's happening at the arrival of Jesus. And the point of that is that Jesus must be the Messiah. That's what Luke is showing us through these accompanying signs of the Spirit's presence. Up to this point, where we are right now, Luke 2, 33, up to this point, Luke's announcement of the arrival of Jesus is very hopeful, isn't it? With all this prophecy fulfillment and songs of prophecy and the end of oppression and the Holy Spirit being poured out on young and old, and already there are miracles and signs and wonders taking place, and all of it seems very positive. I mean, think about what we read on Christmas Eve, just to remind you. We, we didn't preach this text, but we read it from Luke. The veil between heaven and earth was rent open, and the entire host of heaven becomes visible. And who knows how many thousands and thousands of angels appeared to those shepherds, and they sang, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Clearly. Clearly, the restoration has begun in Jesus. And Luke is showing us that. At a very early time, before before Jesus' baptism even, the restoration has begun. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The salvation of God has come. The consolation of Israel has arrived. The king has come. Who could possibly be disappointed in all that we've just seen? Who who would not celebrate the faithfulness of God to his promises? One would expect, as you read Luke's gospel, from from what we've read so far, as you read the rest of Luke's gospel, you would expect to watch it unfold with, with pomp and celebration, and all of Israel rolls out the red carpet to meet Jesus. And they live happily ever after. You might expect that. Were it not for our last blessing, the last of our five introductory blessings here in Luke. In our text this morning, Simeon, who is, just to give you part of the action scene, he's presumably still holding baby Jesus, and he turns from his heavenward gaze where he's been praising God and blessing God, and he turns from heavenward towards, towards Mary and Joseph And he looks at them who are standing beside him, kind of not quite sure what just happened. They're all big-eyed and speechless. And Simeon pronounces this final blessing of Jesus' infancy. And it's not like the others. This, this This is more like, as he gives them the baby back, this is this is more like he's reading the fine print of all of those Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. So you say, before I give you your baby back, there's something you need to know. And then he tells them that because Jesus is the Messiah, there are three prophecies they need to know about. And, I'll, and I'll, I will break him up in this way. The first prophecy is that he is a stone. The second is that he is a sign. And the third is that he is a sword. The stone, the sign, and the sword. And this final blessing has the feel of a, like a mysterious oracle from the movies. Like something that, that happens at the beginning of the mo- movie that maybe this, this old blind man says 
to someone else that's one of the main characters. But you know that what that old blind man said to that lady is going to be really important at the end. You get the sense that everything Simeon says here, we will see unfolding throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke and into the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke. And in fact, that is the purpose of these statements. These statements that Simeon gives us are like uh, one of those Russian dolls, right? And they're, they're just packed full of lots and lots more Russian dolls. And at the very center of it all, as you open it all up and you get to the end, you find the cross. And you think, how did that get there? All of these three little prophecies help us to understand the whole of who Jesus is, even here at the very beginning of his story. And most importantly, this, this, these three prophecies help us to understand the cross. You see what I mean as we work our way through these statements? The stone, the sign, and the sword. But let's, um, here's, here's how we're going to do this this morning. We're going to look backwards to see where each, of, each element of, it, of Simeon's prophecies are coming from. So we're going to look at Simeon's prophecies and say, okay, where did he get that from in the Old Testament? Because all of them are repeat, repeats of Old Testament prophecies, and he's centering them around Christ. So we're going to examine those things, and we're going to see how it all comes together in Jesus' life, and ultimately we'll see why that matters to you sitting here this morning. Because you read it right now, and it doesn't really seem relevant to you, does it? But it is. So first of all, the stone. You see this in verse 34, and you're like, I don't see a stone there. You'll see it. Verse 34, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. In other words, what Simeon is saying is it is predetermined, or more accurately, God has said through the prophets that the Christ will cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. And and you're going to want to keep your Bibles open this morning. We're looking at verse 34 right now, but we're going to be flipping around a little bit. So that the Christ will, will, will cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. This statement comes from a few Old Testament prophecies, all concerning the coming Christ. We see it first in the book of Isaiah, in the prophecy in Isaiah concerning the one called Emmanuel. Many of you are familiar with the Emmanuel prophecy. It's one of our favorite Christmas prophecy, prophecies. So from Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah prophesies to this king named Ahaz, and he tells him, there, you don't have to turn to Isaiah 7, uh, but you can if you want. <laughs> Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He's talking to Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right? So there's the Emmanuel prophecy. And then as you read the rest of that prophecy, we usually start there, stop there in chapter 7. But as you read the rest of what Isaiah says, you get into chapter 8 and you see that the Lord through Isaiah calls Israel to repentance because of the coming judgment. And then he says in Isaiah 8.14, write this one down, 8.14. And he, the Lord, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You see that? The fall? So, so to, to some, this coming of the Lord 
will be a sanctuary, is what Isaiah is saying. To some, he's going to be, when the Lord comes, he's going to be a sanctuary. That he, he, will be, he will be the place where God's mercy and comfort and presence is known to his people. But to others, he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. That is, he will cause many to fall. So to some, he's a sanctuary. To some, he is the rock of offense that causes many to fall. So that's Isaiah 8. Isaiah continues on through his prophesying, and and, and he brings this imagery back again later in Isaiah chapter 28. And he says in chapter 28, this same stone, the place of mercy for some and stumbling for others, this same stone will be the stone on which God himself will build his new temple. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Now, Zion, whenever you see that in the Bible, it often is referenced to the mountain of God, the place of the temple of God. So there in Zion, Isaiah 28, 16 says, is a is a a cornerstone to the new temple, and that cornerstone is a tested stone, which makes you think this is probably a person of some sort. And this tested stone is the cornerstone, the sure foundation of the new temple. And as Joel read for us in Psalm 118, you, you, you heard a little bit of that same language, didn't you? Speaking of that special day, the, Lord, the day the Lord has made, the day of victory when the Davidic king returns to the temple, speaking of that same stone on that day that is to come, the psalm says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And those, all three of those are all messianic prophecies, and when you put them all together, somehow the focal point of God's mercy and the focal point of God's presence is also going to be what causes many to stumble and fall. And Simeon is saying here to Mary, all of that is being fulfilled in Jesus. That's what he means when he says, he is appointed with the fall and the rise of many in Israel. He's the stumbling stone and the cornerstone. Either through faith and a humble, repentant heart, you are lifted up and brought into the presence of God in and through Jesus Or you continue to run full speed ahead and smash your face into the boulder. That is Jesus. Either way, Jesus is unavoidable for you and for everyone. And as you read Luke's gospel, you see that for many in Israel, especially for those who are of high position, those well-respected teachers of the law and those priests who, who make their living through service in the temple, those, those guys who are cozy with the Roman government officials and, and, and the self-sufficient rich, they're going to come face-to-face with Jesus, and many of them, most of them, because of their idolatry or their self-confidence or their assurance in the wrong things, they're going to be exposed and they're going to be brought down. That is very much the theme of Luke's gospel. But Jesus is more than that. He's more than a stumbling stone for those who reject him. He's also the sanctuary for those who receive him, which means he's the place of God's mercy 
He is the cornerstone of the temple, which means he is the place of the presence of God. As the manifestation of God's mercy, he lifts up those who receive him in faith. And as you read Luke's gospel, you see that happening. A tax collector who is the scorn of everyone is lifted up in Christ. A dirty prostitute is lifted up. A serial adulteress is lifted up. Blue-collar fishermen are lifted up. The demon-possessed are healed and lifted up. A paralyzed man is forgiven and lifted up. Those unclean and dying, dying from leprosy are cleansed and lifted up. And you know what else is interesting? That word that Simeon uses for the fall and rising of many, he's appointed for the rise of many, that word is anastasin. It's the exact same word used for resurrection throughout the New Testament. So you could translate it, Jesus is appointed for the resurrection of many. And I think it's both. We're going to come back to this because it is absolutely crucial but for now we can simply recognize that when Simeon says this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel what he means is that Jesus is the stone the builders rejected from Psalm 118 that becomes the cornerstone and he is the stumbling stone and the sanctuary stone of Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 all right secondly Jesus is a sign. Simeon says in that same verse, verse 34, and for a sign that is opposed. So he's appointed for the fall and rising of many, and he's appointed for, insert there, a sign that is opposed. So he's a sign, first of all, and secondly, many will oppose him. It's weird to think of Jesus as a sign, right? When I said that, you're like, what is that? That doesn't, that doesn't follow. It doesn't, we don't think of Jesus as a sign. We like to think of Jesus as the focal point of the scriptures, not a sign, because signs point to something else. They're always pointing to something else. We're so accustomed to thinking of Jesus as the point of the Bible that we expect that there are going to be signs that are pointing to Jesus, and there are. But we often don't think of Jesus as a sign pointing to something else. But Jesus is both. He is the sign that points to the salvation of God. And he is the salvation from God. Again, it is Isaiah that Simeon is getting his language from. In that Emmanuel passage in, in Isaiah chapter 7, Emmanuel is the sign to Ahaz. And then in, in Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet and the children of the prophet are the signs. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, Messiah, again, is the sign himself. Isaiah 11 is that passage about the shoot from the stump of Jesse who's coming, the branch that bears fruit. And then Isaiah 11 verse 2, and you, you probably know this passage, says, Of this shoot, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's talking about Jesus, talking about the Messiah, the spirit-anointed king. And that, that passage right there is, is fulfilled at Jesus' baptism when the spirit comes to rest on Jesus. Exactly as Isaiah 11.2 says it would. But then a few verses later in Isaiah 11, the Lord says, In that day the root of Jesse, Jesus, the Messiah, shall stand as a sign for the peoples. So his coming 
is a sign. It's a sign that God is bringing about the reconciliation of his people back to him through this man, the Messiah. God is bringing peace among his children through the Messiah. But he's also a sign of something else. He's a sign of coming judgment. Jesus is the sign of God's mercy. He's the sign of God's salvation. And he's the sign of God's coming judgment. And that actually has something to do with what Simeon is talking about here. Simeon says he will be a sign that is opposed. What does that mean? Well, just read the Gospels. Read Luke. There's lots of opposition to Jesus. People oppose Jesus all throughout his ministry. He's opposed for healing on the Sabbath. He is opposed for eating and drinking with sinners. He is opposed for cleansing lepers. He is opposed for his teaching. He is opposed for the claims that he makes about himself. He is opposed because of the people that he opposes. Everywhere Jesus went, and with nearly everything that Jesus did, there was this this little gang of naysaying scoffers following him around, speaking against him, opposing him. And it is that building opposition to Jesus that ultimately leads to his death. The leaders of Israel, the, the priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes, those known as the builders from Psalm 118, well, they oppose Jesus so vehemently that they call for his death. And they lie and they scheme and they break God's law in order to do it, which, by the way, reveals their true hearts, doesn't it? They call on Pilate, the governor, to kill him. And because of Pilate's own pride and fear of man, he gives in to their demands and he turns Jesus over to be beaten and crucified. The opposition to the sign is so intense that Jesus, the sign, is killed. But I want you to notice something. We know that story. But Simeon is prophesying about that opposition to come even while Jesus is just a baby. And he's making these observations not just based on a hunch, but based on his study of the Scriptures and the Spirit speaking through him. Simeon knows Isaiah chapter 8. He knows Isaiah 28. He knows Psalm 118, that there will be a stone that the builders reject. So from before the Messiah was born, it was appointed that he would be opposed. So what I want you to see as we see that here in this prophecy is that the cross is not an accident. It's not a mistake. The cross was a part of God's plan from the beginning. This is how Psalm 118 can say that the stone the builders rejected and opposed becomes the cornerstone. On the cross, Jesus dies and so takes on himself the sins of those he came to save. He crucifies the flesh and through his death, he's raised up and through his resurrection, many are raised Fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus, the stone of offense and the cornerstone, is appointed for the rising of many because of the means through which he becomes the cornerstone, which is his death. All who trust in Jesus through his death are raised up with Jesus in the resurrection. And it is these same people, those who are trusting in Jesus, who are crucified with Christ and raised with Christ by faith, those are the people whom the Bible calls the church. 
And these are the people who were the living stones of the new temple with Christ as the cornerstone. As Psalm 118 said would happen, the stone the builders rejected is crucified, and through his crucifixion, he becomes the cornerstone. This happens at the cross. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 focuses so much on the cross. He says, for Jews demand signs. There's that word signs, and they got a sign. They got Jesus. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. And they got wisdom. They got Jesus. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, stumbling stone, same language, to Jews, and folly, foolishness, Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians 1 is that because Christ was crucified, he is Christ, the power of God. The crucifixion of Christ is the sign of his being the one opposed who becomes the cornerstone of the presence and power of God. Because Christ was crucified, he is Christ, the wisdom of God. The crucifixion of Christ reveals the wisdom of God. All of that is packed up into those two little lines. See why I said it's like a Russian doll? All of that. The cross. You get all the way to the cross from just those two little lines that Simeon says, he is appointed for the fall and rise of many and he is the sign opposed. The cross is not an accident. God was not planning on some other means of conquering Satan's sin and death, and then those dastardly religious leaders got in the way. No, no, from the very beginning, going all the way back into the earliest prophecies of the coming Messiah and really into eternity past, the cross was the plan. And that's what Luke is showing us here. For those who are doubting if Jesus is truly the Messiah because he died on a cross... Luke says, that proves he's the Messiah. You see, at the end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus is crucified there, there's, there's, there's a couple of disciples, and you know this is my favorite passage, so just expect it. There, there are a couple of disciples that are really bummed that the one they thought was going to be the Messiah was killed. But then the resurrected Jesus appears to them, they don't recognize him, and he shows them that this cross was always the plan. And that's what Simeon is predicting for us right here. The sign opposed, the stone rejected, becomes the dwelling place of God. So those are the first two lines of prophecy, the stone and the sign. Let's now look to the sword in verse 35. I want to remind you here before I read this, Simeon is talking to Mary. It's kind of, we forget that. But that's what's happening here. Simeon's talking to Mary. Verse 33 says, He blessed them and said to Mary, and here's the third line to Mary, A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, when I read that out loud to you, Simeon seems to be saying, rather plainly, that somehow the sword piercing through Mary's soul has something to do with the thoughts of many hearts being revealed. A sword will pierce through your own soul so that, it's a logical connective language, so that the thoughts of many are revealed. It's puzzling, but at least we understand what that means. Even if we don't see the the connection between Mary and the many, 
we get it. But because it's puzzling, some English translations, like our ESV translation, decided we need to separate that comment to Mary about the sword, and they put some parentheses around it. So some of your Bibles have a parentheses there around the Mary statement. Some of your Bibles, if you look at them, have a hyphen. Some of them have neither. But here's what you need to know. In the original text, in, in the Greek, there isn't any punctuation. There's no punctuation. So, so translators have to make these punctuation decisions when they bring this into English for us. That way we can understand it. With the parentheses there, there's a separation between the comment to Mary about the sword and the thoughts of many. But I don't think that's that helpful. There, there actually is a connection between the two. So I'm reading this like the NIV reads it without a parenthesis. The thrust of the passage is on the person of Jesus, not Mary. The, 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 the emphasis of all of this is about Jesus. The, and, and Messiah is always, throughout the Scriptures, the one whose mouth is a sword. So when you read Isaiah 49, as we read in our Scripture reading last week, the, 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 mouth, coming, the mouth of God, the mouth of Messiah, the tongue is, is, a, is a double-edged sword. In Revelation chapter 1, and in Revelation chapter 2, and in Revelation chapter 19, same language, double-edged sword. Messiah is also the one who, at the judgment, we know this also from Revelation, searches into the heart's in minds of mankind, which is something that we see throughout the Old Testament that only God does. All right, so you have this knowledge that we have from the reading of the rest of the scriptures that Jesus is the word who is the double-edged sword, and God is the judge who is the one who sees in the thoughts, uh, in the thoughts of our hearts. And when these things come together is in the book of Hebrews, and I find that the, the most helpful parallel to what Simeon says here in Luke is this passage in Hebrews chapter 4. Turn there with me. Because you're going to see very similar language in Hebrews chapter 4. And interestingly, as you're turning there, Hebrews comes after Titus. It comes after the last of the Pauline epistles. And many believe that Hebrews, church tradition basically says that Hebrews is a sermon of Paul's written by Luke. So you're going to see some similarities to language that Luke uses in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. God's Word says, For the Word of God, and the Word there is referring to Christ here, the eternal Word, the Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So very much like Simeon's prophecy, isn't it? You have the sword, you have the piercing of the soul, and the discerning of the thoughts of the heart. All there in, the, in, in Hebrews 4.12. And even though Simeon is talking to Mary in his prophecy in Luke, the sense is that everyone will be exposed to this judgment of, the, of this heart-revealing, sword-wielding Messiah. Even Mary 
will undergo this same judgment. Christ is the sword of judgment who cuts to the soul of everyone so that the thoughts of all are revealed. And you see that happening in Jesus' ministry in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus reveals the thoughts of the men who are questioning whether or not Jesus can forgive sins. And then he heals the paralytic and forgives the man's sins. And then in Luke chapter 6, the Pharisees are opposing Jesus in their hearts because he heals a lame man on the Sabbath. And Jesus reveals their thoughts about Sabbath-keeping and the purpose of Sabbath and about their belief in God. And then in Luke chapter 11, the religious leaders see Jesus cast a demon out of a man, and they believe that Jesus is himself somehow demonic, and Jesus sees into their hearts and reveals their thoughts. And the point is that if Jesus is doing all of that soul-piercing gazing into the heart when his glory and majesty are hidden, how much more so will the soul-piercing revelation of our hearts be when his glory is on full display? You see, all of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry is a preview of what Jesus will ultimately do at his return. As the word of God, Jesus is the one who pierces to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrows. And what that means is that as the sword of judgment, Jesus will get to the heart of who you really are. All of your pretending will one day be unveiled by the one who reveals. You can mask yourself so deeply so deeply that no one on earth can know who you really are, maybe not even you. You can hide your true self from everyone, but you cannot hide who you really are from the sword who pierces the soul. Not even Mary could do that. That's the point of what Simeon is saying. Not even Mary, the mother of Jesus, will be able to keep that judgment at bay. All of the thoughts of your heart are revealed by the one who sees into and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you believe that? Because if you do not believe that, if you do not believe that you will one day have to give an account to Jesus for your thoughts and your fears and your emotions and your motivations and everything you ever did, If you don't believe that Jesus is judge, then you are going to carry on the rest of your life as if none of this matters. You're going to carry on believing that I can be whoever I want to be. I can create my own identity with masks and assertions and by sheer willpower. And then when you do have to give an account, you will be crushed by the stone. Jesus will be your downfall. If you believe that you can fake it throughout your whole life, that you can pretend to be a Christian, you can go through the motion, you can give lip service to Jesus, but in your heart you're trusting in something else to save you, friend, that will be revealed by Jesus in the last day. It will be proven that your life was not built upon the cornerstone, and so you will be under the judgment of the crushing stone, and Jesus will be your downfall. But listen, 
Though Jesus is the stumbling stone for those who don't believe in him, he is the cornerstone of those who do. And he was made the cornerstone by his death and resurrection. So for those of you who are trusting in Christ, what will happen at his return for you is this. The sword will pierce your soul, as it will for everyone. And your judgment is going to reveal every selfish motivation you ever had. And every secret, hateful thought, every grudge, every lustful thought, every lie, every time you feared man and tried to fit in with the world, every time you tried to justify yourself, you will be laid bare before the throne of judgment. And knowing that that is coming, then, what we do now is cling to Christ. Because the mercy of God toward you has already been revealed in Christ. Do you see that? He, he, he's already your sanctuary. So when you are tempted, go to Christ and be guarded by him. When you have sinned, go to Christ and be lifted up by him. He is appointed for the rise of many. Go to Christ when you, are, when you have sinned and be lifted up by him. When you are weak, go to Christ and rest in his strength. Even now, Hebrews 4 continues on. He says uh, in Hebrews 4, even now in your time of need, you can go to the throne of grace and receive mercy. Now. And as you do that again and again and again, your life will become more and more deeply rooted in Christ. And so you will begin to bear the fruits of one who is in Christ. And if he's your hope now, your sanctuary now, the cornerstone of your life now, then when he comes as the sword of judgment to expose all of what you did in the flesh, you won't have anything to fear. Though everything you ever thought will be exposed, you will be able with confidence to say, but I was crucified with Christ and lifted up with Christ. My judgment is bound up in him and it's already happened. And now I belong to Christ in his resurrection and the mercy of God will be magnified in Christ in your life on that day. That's what Simeon means when he says this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. Let him be your rising and live in the joy of peace with God today by faith. Amen.